Okay, so we are in part 17 of What Lies Ahead, and I think another 5,000 parts, and we'll barely begin to scratch the surface of all that God's Word has to say about what is to come. And we're so excited about uh, truly what lies ahead, the future kingdom age when uh, Christ comes back and makes all things new. And uh, so no agenda, no particular uh, roadmap here. Obviously the book uh, that I've uh, mentioned several times is on the back table, and we're roughly kind of tracking uh, with that. But no agenda, we just want to spend our Sunday mornings for the foreseeable future talking about uh, things uh, that, re, that, that are to come in God's biblical prophecy. So today, as we've done periodically, uh, we are dedicating the day to a Q&A. And uh, so I had put out a notice that anyone watching the live stream could text us. So let me put that up for those who may be watching. And I'll have my phone here, and if I see a text come in, I've already gotten a couple. Uh, we will try our best to address those uh, questions. But mainly I want to hear from you all what uh, questions you might have. And it does not have to be only about uh, the Olivet Discourse, which is where we've camped out the last two or three weeks. Uh, it can be about anything related to the end times. In fact, really anything theological for that matter. We, we, try to want to, we want to try to keep it in the realm of eschatology or the study of the end times. But really anything that's on your mind, any question that's come up, any scripture verse, anything like that, we'll do our best to... Uh, to dive in. So, uh, with that, let me, I'll just put the uh, books uh, slide back up again for those who may be watching. Uh, we do still have some on the table at the back, but let's uh, open it up for questions. Who'd like to go first with any kind of question related to what we've been talking about? Anyone? Yes, all right. Okay, so I was reading in your book the other evening. And under on page 308, under spiritual characteristics of the millennium, and it says that you know the center of the world's worship will be in Jerusalem. This will feature a rebuilt temple and a return to the Shekinah glory. But it but when it said that um, it said there will um, oh wait a second I'm I'm trying to see where it says when it says that it oh when God's program shifts once again to Israel being center stage the sacrificial system will be restored. The sacrifices will look back in remembrance to the finished work of Christ on the cross. And I was just really surprised about that. I mean, I know I haven't studied to the depth that you have, and I always knew that there was going to be the sacrificial system, you know, with the temple rebuilt, but I didn't think with Christ ruling in the millennium that they would go back to sacrificing animals. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, you're sitting close enough that probably the mic picked it up, but let me just repeat it in case uh, it didn't come through. The question is about the return to the sacrificial system during the millennium. And so let me put up a chart here that shows our uh, end times here. That'll work. Uh, so the Bible is clear that once uh, Christ comes back and takes the throne, that Israel is once again center stage in his plan of the ages. Um, Daniel had prophesied that uh, Israel had a 490-year plan. 483 years of that uh, have already been fulfilled. And so... Let me. I'm going to fix this, or it'll be bothering me the whole whole day. Uh, so, the final seven years is totally Jewish in nature. In fact, it's called um, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, so, so we should not be surprised then 
that uh, the, the full system is in place. And that does trouble a lot of people because based on, again, 1,500 years of replacement theology and the kingdom now theology in the sense that Israel is done and over with, everyone sort of thinks that, that Christ, the Lamb of God, put an end to the sacrifices. And He did for the present age, but in the kingdom they're going to return. And that shouldn't surprise us because the sacrifices never saved anybody. The sacrifices in the Old Testament weren't salvific. They didn't bring about justification. It was always symbolic. Remember in our study through Hebrews, we've been talking about how uh, the sacrifices were a shadow of the substance. And so it's no different on the other end. It's still a shadow of the substance. It's just a matter of which direction are you looking. So the sacrificial system uh, will have even more richness and more meaning and more clarity you know, in the kingdom because we've now seen the ultimate sacrifice than they did as a forerunner or a foretaste of the ultimate sacrifice. So there's no theological problem with it. And really, the key, we, the key is the Bible teaches that. We, we have to let the text speak where it speaks. And there's no doubt that the, uh, during Christ's reign, we will, nations will come up to Jerusalem. All the festivals and sacrifices will be restored once again. So, yeah. Do you think that'll be kind of, I don't know, painful for those who are sacrificing? Almost more so in the sense that they, the, the animals and the humans get along so well. And well, it'll be painful for the animals. Right. I, I just, it just seems like it would be, you know how it feels like it should be going back to Eden in some ways? I guess that's It will. That's exactly it will eventually. But remember, uh, again, see up here on the far right where we've got Messianic Kingdom? Right. There are two aspects to it. You've got the millennial phase, which is that first thousand years, and that's on the old earth. And sin will still be present. It'll be held in check, and it'll be an age of unprecedented justice because Christ will be on the throne ruling with a rod of iron, but there will still be sin. And as far as the relationship with animals, the, when Isaiah talks about you know, the, the lion uh, and the lamb and the baby playing by the... That's not necessarily suggesting that animals will never die. It's just saying that there won't be predatory a predatory relationship anymore. So, uh, so yeah, no, no uh, conflict there. Good question. Yeah. I want to know about about you know like the last battle after the millennial, right? Didn't you say that all the sinners will come together mm -hmm. and stuff? Is it what what battle is that called? That's called Gog and Magog, but it's confusing because there are two Gog and Magogs. Gog and Magog is a of course a region and the leader of that region. And it's, there are going to be two battles that emanate from that, from that area. The first is the one that, it's not on the chart here, but we talked quite a bit about it. It's the one that uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes that I believe takes place after the rapture, but before the beginning of the tribulation. So in that sort of purple, it's blue on my screen, but on the TV it looks more purple, uh, preparation of unknown length in that little gap of time there. But the one you're talking about is at the end of the millennium when Satan is let out of prison and he gathers all the unbelievers at that time and there's one final battle which with a word Christ casts them into the you know everlasting fire, the lake of fire forever and ever. So, Good. Yes, sir. To piggyback on Karen's question regarding the... Um, sacrificial system during the millennium uh, do you uh, have any thoughts uh, or scripture regarding beyond that 
uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. And what jogs my thinking on that is that that point it says there will be no more death. Right. So then it would seem that would be the cessation of the sacrificial system um, into the eternity of Christ's reign. That's correct. Yeah, just to be clear, the sacrificial system is only part of the millennial phase, not the new heavens and the new earth. Because when the new heavens and new earth come, which again, God will recreate them out of nothing. It's not a, it's not a renovation or a patch, you know, fixing up. The old heaven and the old earth are utterly destroyed and in and, and a return, just like it was to the beginning of time, God recreates them. The difference is in the eternal state, there'll be no time. There'll be no uh, night. There'll be no sea. There'll be no uh, death and all of those things. So those, the sacrificial system is a function of time, space, and matter. And that, that will be over and done with after the millennium. But according to Isaiah 65 and several passages in the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system being reinstituted during the millennial. Now, millennium. Now, the reason that troubles people, again, is because they don't understand the distinction between Israel and the church. And they don't understand God's plan of the ages as we've uh, described it. Um, let me put this up on the screen. Uh, you know, we're living in the, in the last days or what's called the church age. And when you think the church has replaced Israel, then of course you have, there's no sense in which you would envision, uh, you know, a future sacrificial system. But we don't base our views on what we might or might not envision. We base them on what the Bible says. And the Bible clearly indicates that we're living in the church age now, which is a parenthesis in God's program for Israel. He pressed pause when they crucified the Savior but he clearly promised that someday the Savior would come back and all that was promised to Israel would be fulfilled. And when that happens, it's going to pick up where it left off, but only during the millennial phase. So, yeah, Gary. Well, you partially answered in Isaiah 65, but specifically where in there does it talk about? So, and I've got a, uh, for anybody who's interested, I've got a lengthy paper that I wrote, a Hebrew exegetical paper in my PhD studies on Isaiah 65, because there's some interesting stuff going on there. Um, at times it's talking about the millennial phase, and at times it's talking about the eternal state, and there's some, some markers in the text itself that sort of indicate uh, which it is. Let's see here. Um, I'd have to just breeze through it here and see where any references might be. But, it, you know, the sacrificial system is, you know, we, we see that in a lot of passages that talk about, you know, all of the nations coming up to Jerusalem for the sacrifices and things like that. And, when, and by the way, you, you've brought this uh, question up, which I'm beginning to regret. No, um, you, um, no, it's a great question. And you brought it up from the book. And we will get to those chapters. We're going to have a whole, we're going to deal extensively with the millennium and all of the different characteristics of the millennium, the physical characteristics, geographic characteristics, spiritual characteristics, and then we'll move into the eternal state. So we're going to get to all that in more detail, uh, and if you want to look in the chapter in my book, I list all the different references that indicate that. Um, but you see the first part of Isaiah 65 through about verse 16 is dealing with the millennial phase, and then 17 and following is the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but at a glance, I can't put my finger on 
uh, <coughs> where it's talking about the sacrifices. <coughs> so any other questions on that, Gary? Well, I guess I was also wondering, the 144 that go out, Jews that go out into the world to spread the gospel, and we've heard before that the nation Israel won't be, I guess, saved in a sense until they announce Hosanna, Hosanna, they proclaim Christ. So... Are they Christians at that point, or are they still Jews, but they've just accepted him as their Messiah now? Okay, so the question is about the 144,000 witnesses, Jewish witnesses, during the tribulation, and the ultimate deliverance of the nation of Israel into her kingdom. So that's good, because I had a text with a question on the 144,000 too, so I can kind of hit both of y'all. Um, so the 144,000, which are mentioned in Revelation 7 and 14, are 12,000 people from each of 12 tribes of Israel, and their task is to evangelize the world. And I take it that they, and the Bible says they are sealed to be protected from the harm of the Antichrist. So I take it that those are sealed at the beginning of the tribulation, because after the rapture, there's not a single believer on the earth. And so people could get saved very quickly after the rapture because all they have to do is trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation. And, and there will be plenty of uh, gospel messages still on the earth in the form of books, you know, videos, tr gospel tracts, things like that. But the biggest uh, response to the gospel at the beginning of the tribulation is going to come from the fruit of these 144,000 witnesses that go throughout the earth uh, sharing the gospel. Now, as far as Israel's deliverance into the kingdom, that is uh, something that uh, the Bible is very, very clear on. It's going to be a supernatural regathering. If you look at Matthew 24, and we'll get to this passage in our, look, in our walk through the Olivet Discourse, but when he comes back in, in verse 31, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds of, uh, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's the fulfillment of a multitude of Old Testament promises that says one day Israel will get into the land. Deuteronomy 30 verse 3, Isaiah 27 verse 13, and many others. In fact, almost all of the Old Testament second coming passages speak of the time when Israel will be regathered into her land. So, uh, but the Bible also tells us, both Jesus said it and Paul elaborates on it in, in Romans 10 and 11, that the nation of Israel cannot get into the kingdom unless they have first believed the gospel, right? They don't get a pass just because they're Jews. Jews, like every human being, must express personal faith in the Lord to become saved and, and be part of the family of God. So the nation has a promise and a blessing. Remember we walked through all of that 17, 16, 17 sessions ago with the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And, and indeed, the nation's promises will be fulfilled, but they're predicated upon belief. So Jesus, for example, uh, when he, in, in Matthew 23, issues those stern rebukes of the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, he says, you will not see me again until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Paul, giving us sort of the doctrinal basis for this, explains in Romans 10 that it's his heart's desire that the nation of Israel be delivered into the kingdom. 
And indeed, they will be. In fact, he goes, if you follow the train of thought all the way through chapter 10 and at the end of chapter 11, he says, one day the deliverer, Jesus, is going to come back. And then all Israel, the nation, will be delivered into her kingdom. But between that, you know, in Romans 10, verse 1 and 11, 25, he explains that in order for that to happen, in order for Israel, the nation, to call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom, they must first believe the gospel. And uh, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed, he says. And so, for example, Romans 10, 9, and 10 is a very misunderstood passage in the context. People often think that Paul is listing two things that are sort of synonymous in order to get into heaven. He's not. He's saying with the heart, individuals believe and are declared righteous, but with the mouth, confession is made nationally and they are saved. Remember, saved just means delivered. And in Romans 10, Paul's term for individual salvation is justified or declared righteous. His term for national salvation is saved. So in the context, he even quotes Joel 2.32 in Romans 10.13, which is not an eternal salvation passage. He's not talking about individuals. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is, will be delivered. Go back and look at Joel 2.32. That's a second coming passage speaking of Israel being delivered into her kingdom as a nation. So you put all that together in Romans 10, what he's saying is you can't call on anyone until you believe. Once you believe the gospel, Israel in belief as a nation will call on the name of the Lord, be Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will be delivered into the kingdom as the deliverer comes back. And that corresponds perfectly with the words of Jesus in Matthew 23 and 24. So hopefully that helps, uh, helps clarify. It, it really removes a lot of the confusion about Romans 10 because otherwise you've got to explain how confession is necessary to get into heaven. And that would mean mute people can't be saved, you know, uh, and, and a lot of, poses a lot of other problems. But in the context there, based on the Joel 2 quote, based on the fact that there's clearly a distinction between believing and calling, they're not the same thing, uh, and you have to believe before you can call, uh, clearly he's talking, he's contrasting their individuals with uh, national. And he says, why didn't they get the kingdom? Because they've not all believed our report. You know, that's what he says. Does that help? Or just create more questions. What? Okay. Any? Does that make sense though? You got to believe individuals. No unsaved Jews will be gathered into the kingdom. That's the bottom line. You know, when Jesus comes back and regathers Israel into the land, they will have all believed the gospel. Not all, of course. There will still be some, which is the whole point of the Olivet Discourse, is to warn against deception. Even at the second coming, there will be those Jews who reject Christ yet again. But by and large, they will believe in him, and more importantly, the na national leaders will get it the second time around. They cried, crucify him, crucify him the first time. The next time they will cry, Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they cannot do that unless they first believe the gospel. And so the 144,000 are a part of that, but they're not just targeting Jews, even though they're Jews themselves. They're targeting people of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. They are the primary evangelistic mechanism during that seven-year period. So you'll have a host of Gentiles being saved, but you'll also have the nation of Israel coming to faith and recognizing they crucified their Messiah, and they'll, you know, as Zechariah says, they'll look on him whom they pierced, you know. So that's, that's kind of what's going on there. Yeah? So in Matthew 24, 7 and 8, there were some detail. I think it was there. There were some details that uh, chronologically seemed to shadow uh, a group of judgments in the tribulation. Were those the seals, the bulls? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so we looked, the question is about the parallels between the Olivet Discourse and the Tribulation Judgments. Let me see if I can find that. I've actually got that here. So just give me a second and I'll throw it up for everyone. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But yeah, it's amazing how uh, the Olivet Discourse parallels exactly what we see happening, at least with the seal judgments. Uh, and so there it is. So uh, Jesus warns against false Christ. Well, we see the first seal judgment is the rider on the white horse, the unveiling of the Antichrist. We see references to war. The second seal judgment is death. The, we see references to famine. Then we see scarcity of food. Uh, a quarter of the population dies. Martyrdom. And then ultimately these cosmic signs like lightning from the east to the west and, and all of that. So um, the, the, seven, the 70th week of Daniel or that seven-year tribulation period, remember, is called the time of Jacob's trouble. So it's all about Israel. And it is the, it be, it's the great day of the Lord's wrath. And that wrath begins with the first seal judgment in Revelation 6. So a lot of times people mistakenly think the first part of tribulation isn't God's wrath. And so they've come up with alternative views that the rapture happens halfway through or two-thirds of the way through and all of that. But we know from Revelation 6 that the wrath begins with the first seal. That's, that's the whole reason uh, in, in Revelation 4 and 5 you have this theodicy, this, this justification for the wrath of God. Who is worthy to open the seals? What seals? The seals of God's wrath. And the Lamb, He is worthy. So Jesus Christ opens the seals and the wrath of God is poured out. And the first seal begins right at the beginning because it's the unveiling of the Antichrist who signs the peace treaty uh, with Israel. So you can't have uh, wrath any later. And it's throughout the seven years. The whole seven years is the great day of the Lord's wrath. Um, and that's important for a lot of reasons, but it's important because it's one more reason why we know the church is not going to be in on the earth during the tribulation because Paul twice in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9 promises that we will not have to be here when the wrath of God is poured out. Uh, so we're rest, that's what the rapture does. It rescues us not from bad times or not from difficult times. or It rescues us from one thing and one thing only, the wrath of God. So don't miss that. I mean, a lot of people put words in the mouths of pre-tribulationists and say, oh, they teach that the church is going to be rescued before it gets bad. We've never taught that. The Bible doesn't teach that. And nobody I know as a dispensational scholar has ever taught that. The rapture rescues us, but it rescues us from the wrath of God, that final seven-year period, so we don't have to face it. Somebody else? we got some questions coming in online here, too. Yeah. Um, my question is kind of about the hardening of hearts. And you see, even in in secular society, there are people saying, well, you know, the beast system is coming into play. And, you know, they're using these very spiritual phrases. And um, there are some, you know, with prophecy, these prophecies have been around for so long that a lot of non-believers are familiar with them. And it's going to be so clear that prophecy is being fulfilled. Um, it made me think of when, you know, the Bible, I believe it says God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. Sure, like six or seven times, yeah. So what does that, 
for one, do you believe that God is hardening people's hearts during the tribulation because they got to the point where he, he really wants them to understand the consequences of, of where their heart has been, and it sort of it turns them over to their evil desires? Um, do you feel like that's, in, is that's what's happening? And if so, what, what exactly do you feel like, how does God harden a person's heart? What does that look yeah, like? Yeah, so I think you answered your own question. If you go back and look at the account of Pharaoh, he hardened his own heart before the Bible tells us God hardened his heart. Right. The text tells us that. So I think it's a matter of, like you said, Romans 1, turning them over. Um, but, you know, God is sovereign. And, you know, God, we still have free will and we have free choice, but we can quench the spirit. We can uh, become self-deceived. We can have a seared conscience. So there are things that our own behaviors can lead to where God says enough and, and our heart is hardened. And I think that's kind of what's going on there theologically. And I think that's clearly what happened in the case of Pharaoh. In my uh, series on Calvinism, the DVD, not the audio, I may do it in the audio too, but the DVD is longer. And I know I spent some time addressing the passage in Pharaoh because Calvinists like to point to that and say, see, that, you know, he didn't have a choice, right? He was forced. Um, but if you look at the text carefully, he hardened his own heart, just like you know, we see in Acts uh, 7 when Stephen says you know, to the Jews, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So we see lots of examples. Uh, and of course, we know this from God's you know, plan that God gave us free will. He didn't force Adam and Eve to eat the apple, right? And he doesn't force us to receive the gift in payment for that sin that we've committed. So, uh, so yeah, I think you you really have a good handle on on the the relationship there. It's it sort of a begins with the with our own depravity and kind of going down that road, and then you get to a point where then God kind of comes in and it's like a point a bridge too far. At that what point. is he, I mean? Do you think just the Spirit comes in and, and makes you more calloused, or how, how does what does the hardening of a man's heart by God what what is he doing explicitly, do you think, there? Yeah, hardening of heart, basically, the, the word picture there is that each time you resist, a layer is put around your heart so it makes it harder for the Holy Spirit to break through. And we, we can see this anecdotally because, obviously, with habits, the more bad habit, you know, upon bad habit upon bad habit, it just becomes harder and harder and harder to break that. But if you develop good habits, it's harder and harder for the devil to come in and tempt us, right? So, so it's the same thing, you know, when you have a, a seared conscience or a, uh, like we talked about in Romans 1, or a, you know, you grieve the spirit, that kind of thing, you quench the spirit. It's like your heart becomes so hard that you cannot hear the, you know, the voice of the Lord. Yeah. I'm thinking about the the, you know, the ages, like you have seven sections of ages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you were saying they get like worse and worse and worse. It seems like at the beginning of each second age, it seems to be getting, wouldn't you say at the beginning it would seem to be getting a little bit better and then each age gets worse? Like for example, after the law, Moses introduced a lot of good things and the children of Israel were wanting to sacrifice and stuff and then they they got bad really terrible towards the end and mm -hmm. then once the church came 
everything got a little bit better for the beginning and then it got worse. So, so we don't want to confuse pockets of revival and times where God's people are turning their hearts toward the Lord with the big picture. And the big picture is depravity is a degenerative disease. And so I was trying to think, I don't have it on in this presentation, but I have one where I show this exact chart, but then I show sin enters there between one and two at the end of the age of innocence, and then we move into the age of conscience. And from that point on, 2 Timothy 3.13 says, evil men and imposters are getting worse and, and worse. And so there were a lot of positive things happening, just even in the human realm. I mean, a lot of the advancements and inventions and you know, th those kinds of things are good, but it doesn't mean that the heart of man is getting better. And so um, man is depraved. Depravity gets worse and worse. The Spirit of God is at work on the planet Earth, and He's drawing men to the Lord. He's moving among people. And certainly in the nation of Israel, there were times when they repented and turned their hearts toward the Lord, and there were time seasons of blessing. But that's, that doesn't mean that it was somehow overall getting better. Yeah, I'm just saying at the beginning of each age, and then at the end of each age, it seems to be getting worse. And like I was, I was thinking... Reset, the great reset. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Klaus Schwab had anything to do with this. Um, it's like the, the cycle of apostasy. Of yeah, I mean, you might be onto something. Each age might be a microcosm of the whole. And, uh, and certainly as God moves and begins to interact with mankind in different ways and different stewardships, which is what each one of these dispensations is, there's a time in which they react positively, but then it quickly turns south. We know that's true of the church age. You know, the church age flourished, and now 2,000 years later we're in the age of apostasy. Yeah. So in Matthew 24, 40 and 41, is that describing believers versus unbelievers? So, yeah, the question is about Matthew 24, 40, and 41, and I can't wait to get to this in detail, but this is an anything-goes question, so I'm happy to answer it now. Um, the, the analogy of Noah here is not about the church. Okay, there's nothing about the church in the Olivet Discourse whatsoever. The church did not exist it uh, had not been revealed. The rapture had not been revealed. The first time the rapture, any inkling of the rapture is revealed is not till the next day in Thursday night in the upper room when Jesus mentions it. So, yes, he's differentiating between believers and unbelievers, but not the church. So let's, let's look at this passage. If you have your Bible, look at Matthew 24, 36. Uh, no, uh, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days of Noah so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, a lot of people have stretched that way beyond what it means. And they've gone back and said, essentially, every tit-for-tat that was happening in Noah's day is going to be revived and so forth. That's not what he's saying. The text, Jesus actually tells us what he means by the analogy because he goes on to say, for, as in the days of Noah, what is that? That's a, a comparison using like or as, a simile, a figure of speech. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So the took them all away is the unrighteous. In fact, in Luke's account 
of this same parable. It's not the Olivet Discourse. It's in Luke 17, but same exact analogy Jesus is making. Jesus says the flood came and destroyed them all. So the ones taken away in Noah's day were the unrighteous. The ones left behind in Noah's day were the righteous, right? I mean, it should be obvious. It should seem clear enough. And so... Uh, so he's contrasting here the righteous and the unrighteous, believers and unbelievers. Noah's family was believers. They were left behind. But the whole point of his analogy, in fact, the whole point of everything from that, from verse 36 on uh, until you get to uh, really the, uh, the sheep and goats judgment, is, is, an, is an encouragement to be ready. To be ready. So a lot of people read into the analogy of Noah or the days of Noah, the things like the Nephilim, and I believe the Nephilim are active, but not from this verse. I think the Bible teaches that elsewhere. Genesis 6 says that the Nephilim were there before and after the flood. So I think we're going to see an uptick. And I talked about this in Spirit of Phenomena, one of the uh, series of, in my Spirit of the Antichrist series. So I'm right with a lot of these folks who, who rightly recognize the bloodlines of the Nephilim and recognize the spiritual cosmic struggle and demonic activity and all that. But that's not because Jesus said we're going to return to the days of Noah. That's not what he said. He said, just get the picture. Just like in the days of Noah, you had someone sounding a warning, announcing judgment, and telling everybody to get ready, and everybody turned a deaf ear and refused to listen. In the same way, during the tribulation, which is what this is about, people are going to be sounding the warning, and they're going to still, many people reject, and if they do, they're going to be swept away in judgment, the same way the people in Noah's day were. So then he gives the actual verses you asked about. He says, for then, that is at the judgment of Christ when he comes back. And remember, not to keep side-noting here, but when Christ comes back the second time, it's about judgment. He comes with a sword proceeding out of his mouth to tread the winepress of the fury and wrath of Almighty God. When he came the first time, he came in the most humble means, born in a manger and you know, sacrificed his life in a horrific crucifixion and he was the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world when he comes back the second time he's the king of kings and he's coming to execute judgment and so then when he comes back two men will be in the field one will be taken that is taken away into judgment the other will be left that is left behind to inhabit the kingdom so if you look at again the timeline of uh the end times we want to focus on that black arrow on the far right that says second coming. So when Christ comes back, and he goes on to explain this in chapter 25 of Matthew in the, at the end of the Olivet Discourse, everyone on earth and their physical bodies that's still alive is going to be in one of two camps, like, like we always are throughout time, saved and unsaved. And the saved he calls the sheep, the unsaved he calls the goats, and the sheep he says, come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. The goats, he says, depart from me into the lake of, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So what he's saying here in, in just in advance of that, before he actually gets to that passage, is it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. The floods came. Some people were left to inhabit the earth. Others were taken away into judgment. When I come back, he's saying, some people are going to be left. Come ye inherit the kingdom, the sheep. Some are going to be swept away into judgment. Depart from me into the everlasting fire. Same thing. So it sounds very rapturesque. Two men will be in the field, one taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, the other left. But what does it mean to be taken? 
The text tells us what it means to be taken. In verse 39, the very preceding verse, the flood came and took them all away. And again, in Luke 17, uh, the same exact analogy is used. And instead of the Greek verb took, he uses the Greek word destroyed, apolumi, destroyed them all. So there can be no doubt that the ones taken away are judged and destroyed, not rescued and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the exact opposite. Does that make sense? Yeah. I wanted to ask about, basically, I know about, like, basically the, the U.S. and, like, all the English-speaking countries and, you know, stuff like that will fight Asia and Russia, you know, and the Middle East and stuff. So in the Battle of Gog and Magog, and then I'm, and then Africa will sort of follow the, the Antichrist, and then I'm wondering, what about like the South America? Don't, it doesn't seem to be, like, mentioned at all. Right, and neither is America. Neither is North America. I know. So, um, so the question is the the makeup of the sides in the in the Battle of Gog and Magog. So all we know is that nations from the west are going to align and do battle with nations from the north. We know the nations from the north include Russia, because that's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 tells us. But beyond that, we assume it's the same old suspects through the centuries. Um, but it could be that somehow nations from as far west as America play a part in that. We just don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's, many scenarios are possible. Looking at it humanly speaking, if the Lord tarries is coming, it seems that America is on a swift path for destruction and may not even be a factor by the time the rapture happens. We don't know. But if, certainly if the rapture were to happen today, we know that America is the seat of at least the financial and political aspects of the Luciferian agenda. And go back to the spirit of the Antichrist where I made this case and think Psalm 2 where the nations are conspiring together to, to overthrow the Lord. This has been the cosmic battle from the beginning. And right now, if you, if you know, look at the top tier Luciferians, they are centered in New York City and Washington, D.C. Not exclusively, but that's a big part of it. They're also in London. They're also in Rome. They're in other parts of the country. Uh, believe it or not, there's some in Israel. <laughs> I know that's hard to swallow, but that's a big part of it. Because Israel is not there in belief today. They're there in unbelief. So, uh, so if thing, it, it kind of depends on when things happen. Uh, one of the questions I got on the phone was, you know, the identity of the Antichrist. And could he be you know, Jewish? Could he be Middle Eastern? Could he even be Western? I, think he, I don't think he can be Jewish. I think we can rule that out from some of the descriptions. But he certainly does not necessarily have to emanate from the revived Roman Empire geographically. Because even though there's going to be the ten-nation confederacy and the revival of the Roman Empire, what is an empire, right? In a globalist world, that empire might include nations from as far away as America. I mean, conceivably. We don't know that. We've, I've always kind of been trained and grown up thinking it's going to be the same geographic territory. But geographic territories change even within the Bible. And even Israel's geographic territory is going to change when it gets into the kingdom. So we don't know exactly what the boundaries of the revived Roman Empire will be. At the minimum, it will certainly correspond to the ancient Roman Empire, but it could be more than that. And so uh, in a globalist world where you've got, you know, Austrians becoming governor of California, you've got, you know, 
Nigerians or whatever Obama was becoming president of the United States, and you got all kinds of weird stuff going on. It's certainly impossible. It's certainly possible for someone who might physically reside in America to end up heading up this Western alliance that, that Gog and Magog talks about and becoming the one who is the future Antichrist. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I think you know we, we get sort of tunnel visioned into trying to identify him and we have to recognize that you know other than ruling out that he's a Jew. And a lot of people disagree with me on that though. So do your own study, look at the relevant passages. We looked at a lot of them in our Spirit of the Antichrist series. Um, so don't just take my word for it, but I've dogmatically ruled out that the Antichrist will be Jewish. And, um, and then, but beyond that, it's hard to, to really say. So um, one other question I'd like to get to on here because it was, came through early on. And it's a question about the relationship between premillennialism and postmillennialism. Now those are big, you know, $10 words, but what do we mean by that? So premillennialism, as the name indicates, is the belief that Jesus is going to come back before the uh, millennium, just as we have it on the screen here. So we believe the Bible teaches premillennialism. Christ comes back, then you have the millennium, that first thousand years of the kingdom. Uh, and the question was actually about post-trip. So there are those who put the rapture at the same time. See how we've got rapture over here on the far left with the black down arrow, and then we've got second coming over there on the far right with the down arrow. They would move the rapture all the way down to that end and overlay them, and they only see one return of Christ. They do not see a distinction uh, in Scripture between the rapture and the second coming. All passages that talk about His return are morphed together into the same event. And that view is called historic premillennialism or post-trib. So again, post-trib meaning the rapture, they think, happens post after the tribulation post-tribulationism so there is a group out there that would consider themselves post-tribulational as it relates to the rapture the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation but premillennial in that christ still comes back and there is still an earthly kingdom so you you following me on that viewpoint rapture and second coming are the same event rapture happens at the end of the tribulation so the church goes through the tribulation then the rapture and second coming are simultaneous, and then there's an earthly kingdom. So that is called uh, historic premillennialism, and I'm pretty sure that's like John Piper's view and a few others, a lot, some of the Reformed guys. Most of them are amillennial, but a few of them still believe in a literal kingdom. The difference is, there's, several, there's a couple of problems with that, but the biggest difference between premillennialism, as we believe the Bible teaches, and historic premillennialism is that historic premillennialism does not see a distinction between Israel and the church. They believe in replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel. So that seven-year tribulation to them is irrelevant. It's all symbolic. There's no time of Jacob's trouble per se. It's all just sort of the last seven years of the church age. That's their view. Now that's a you know, completely incorrect view, and it does not, it's not consistent in how it treats the different passages of Scripture. But and I make the case in the book on that extensively, but I want to point out sort of a fatal flaw, sort of a smoking gun that makes that view impossible regardless of the fact that Scripture discounts it. So if they think all of the second coming passages in the New Testament are the same thing, the rapture and the second coming are overlaid, 
let's think about the implications of that. And, and yet they still believe in a literal earthly kingdom. That's, that's what they're suggesting, right? So if you look at that black arrow on the far right, now let's just assume that's, that's all the passages that relate to Christ's coming are happening at once right then. That's the way they see it. Well, what do we know based on Matthew uh, 24 or 25, the sheep and the goats? What do we know happens? That's one of the return of Christ passages. What do we know from that passage happens to unbelievers? All unbelievers are gathered together as goats. He calls them metaphorically. And what happens to them? Lake of fire. Or actually, technically, the everlasting fire. The lake of fire is at the very end. Um, So there's no unbelievers left at that point on earth in their physical body. Now let's look at another return of Christ passage. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4. What do we know happens to all believers at the return of Christ based on 1 Thessalonians 4? Anybody remember? We talked about this a few weeks ago. That's a rapture passage, harpazo, the catching up. Very clear in the context that it's a rapture. But let's, again, just playing devil's advocate and assuming these people are correct, that all of these passages are the same event, simultaneous. What happens to all believers when Christ comes back according to 1 Thessalonians 4? Well, they would they would say it's a U-turn. They yeah, they would agree because the text says they meet in the clouds, but then they say they come on back. But what happens to our bodies at that moment? They're glorified, right? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. This mortal puts on immortality. This that's from First Corinthians fifteen. But this corruptible puts on incorruption. So at According to one return of Christ passage, all believers are put into their glorified bodies. And according to another one, all unbelievers are cast into the uh, everlasting fire. It's going to be a pretty lonely kingdom for a thousand years with no physical people there to to worship Christ and to have babies and all of that. So there's a flaw in their logic, even if you think all of those passages are the same. So... uh, the, the rapture cannot happen at the end of the tribulation at the same time as the second coming because there would be no human beings in their physical bodies left on earth. All the unsaved are in the everlasting fire. All the saved have been into their glorified bodies and there's no procreation, you know, no marriage, no given in marriage. So, uh, so there's what's the point? What's the point of an earthly kingdom? See? So uh, we clearly, the Bible teaches that and there's distinctions. I've looked at several of them from Scripture. We looked at them uh, earlier, but I'll throw them back up here. Uh, the distinctions between the, you know, the rapture and the second coming. So, obviously, at the rapture, Christ comes in the air. The second coming comes all the way to the Mount of Olives. Uh, at the rapture, all the rapture passages only the saved are in view. It says nothing about the unsaved. It's just a blessing, a rescue of unbelievers. At the second coming, as I just said, sheep and goats, you've got saved and unsaved in view. At the rapture, the dead are raised to life. Remember those who, the dead in Christ shall rise first. That is, their physical bodies anyway. But at the second coming, the living are sent to death. The goats depart from me into the everlasting fire. And then uh, at the rapture, believers go from earth to heaven. At the second coming, believers come from heaven to earth. Revelation 19, riding on white horses with him. Uh, the rapture is followed immediately by the tribulation, which is why First Thessalonians says we have to be rescued from the great day of the Lord's wrath. Uh, the second coming is followed immediately by the millennium. 
not necessarily immediately. There's a gap of time, uh, about 75 days. But uh, anyway, the rapture is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. The second coming clearly is not imminent. We know it will not happen until the end of this tribulation. Um, the rapture is a mystery, meaning it was not revealed in the Old Testament. The second coming is definitely predicted in the Old Testament when Christ comes back to inaugurate the kingdom. The rapture is the purpose is to rescue. The second coming, the purpose is to judge. Uh, the rapture then is a message of comfort, and the, the second coming is a message of, war of judgment and warning. Does that make sense? I know that's kind of heady, but uh, it's important to understand that you know, a lot of these views that have arisen over the last you know, few hundred, couple hundred years, really, are just not logical. And if we just stick with the literal, grammatical, historical approach to Scripture, it all works perfectly. Uh, God has a purpose for the church. Remember we talked about five purposes for the church and five purposes for Israel early on in this series. And when the purposes of the church are through, we're going to be rescued. Then Israel, once again, is God's you know, primary focus on earth, and they play out, uh, play out their days. Any other... Uh, well, here's a, here's a couple more here. Oh, we're way over time. <laughs> Sorry. I, uh, man, we ran out of time. Sorry for those of you that... Uh, uh, let me answer this one real quick. The pre-wrath, since it'll be easy. Again, they do not believe the wrath starts with the first seal judgment which I don't know how you can read Revelation 6 and not understand that. So Marvin Rosenthal, who kind of created this view and made it popular, believes the wrath doesn't start until about here. I don't know if you can see my cursor here, my mouse, on the screen, but it's basically halfway through the second half of the tribulation. I forget which one of the trumpet. Do you remember, Pastor John? Somewhere he, he one of the trumpet judgments he thinks is the beginning of the wrath. Until then, I guess it's just all happy days. You know, a quarter of the earth's dying, and you know, all of that. But yeah, it's happy days. So that's where the pre-wrath view comes. Um, there, the name of the view, the pre-wrath rapture, is correct. The rapture is going to happen prior to the wrath of God. Where they're wrong is where they place the wrath. And we can prove biblically that the wrath starts at the beginning of the tribulation. All right, well, thank you guys. We'll end there, and we'll start up here in about 10 minutes. Thanks. Yeah, there'd be no soldiers in...